Good morning, everyone. Uh, we'll acknowledge that uh, today is the first day for our new clerk, Grant Butler, to have opened court. I'm assuming his tape survived the sounding of the gavel. Uh, welcome to your new role. Uh, our first case this morning is Providence Volunteer Fire Department, Inc. versus the Town of Weddington et al. And we will hear from the appellant. May it please the court, good morning. Uh, good morning, Chief Justice Newby and the associate members of this court. My name is Christopher Duggan from the Duggan Law Firm, Union County Bar, uh, Monroe, North Carolina. And I have the honor and privilege to represent Providence Volunteer Fire Department in this litigation before this honorable court. Before I get going, uh, I'd ask for a reservation of approximately 10 minutes, if I may, uh, for a rebuttal. Your Honors, we're asking this court to reverse the Court of Appeals decision and reinstate the learned opinion of Judge Daniel Kienert of the trial court. I'd like to correct something in my brief, if I may, first, before we get going. I had stated that the standard of review for this personal jurisdiction issue was a deference to the trial court. I believe after my research and preparation for today, I believe it is a de novo review. Uh, the case White versus True, which sets that out, uh, discusses uh, de novo review with regard to sovereign immunity. Because we're talking about governmental immunity uh, on this basis, I'd invite the court to extend that holding uh, to hold for uh, governmental immunity uh, as well as the sovereign immunity. This case also involves two different defendants with two different issues. The issues before this court with regard to the defendant town is governmental immunity. The issue before the court with regard to the defendant uh, mayor is legislative immunity. We would offer to this court, no matter how this court looks at this case, it is clear that the defendant town and defendant Dieter engaged in fraud, fraudulently induced my client to transfer its long-held property to the town so that it may hold that property and transfer it to another volunteer fire department. The town didn't need this property to have fire service in the town, but it needed this property in order to come to fruition its desire to transfer the service to another fire company. Court of Appeals erred in several ways. The first of which is they, they didn't do a fact-intensive uh, investigation as this court has instructed it through the estate of Williams. What the Court of Appeals did is it used a statute which I think is, is wholly inapplicable uh, to this matter. The statute used was Chapter 69, Article 3A, Rural Fire Protection Districts. Weddington is not a rural fire protection district. Providence Volunteer Fire Department is not a rural fire protection district. And we need to go no further than the first paragraph for a sentence of 69.25.1, or dash 25.1, upon the petition of 35% of the resident freeholders living in an area lying outside the corporate limits of a town or a city. This matter involves a fire company located inside uh, the corporate town limits. 69 is not applicable. There was not an election had, a special election called for by the County Board of Commissioners as is required by 69. The statute is inapplicable. What I believe the Court of Appeals did is look at the statute and says here is where the legislature discusses fire departments. Here is where we can hold that this fire service is a governmental function. And yes, as, a, as a, uh, the state of Williams has pointed out, something might be considered over its life to be a governmental function, but that's changed or can change. It's a fluid situation. That is why we're requiring a fact-intensive investigation. And when you do that fact-intensive investigation, you're going to see a number Mr. 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 Duggan, before we before before yes, you move on there, let me make sure I understand you. You are not contending, are you, that 
a municipality doesn't have the authority to enter into a contract for fire suppression service with a, a volunteer fire department, are you? That is not what I'm contending, Your Honor. Okay, because I, I mean, I, I, I saw the in-depth discussion of these statutes in your brief, and I was trying to figure out exactly where you were going with that. If it's not, if you were not contending that uh, a municipality doesn't have the authority to contract with a volunteer fire department for fire suppression service, what in your why why should we view these? What, what purpose do these statutes serve, at least in your understanding of what the appropriate governmental immunity analysis is? I, I don't. I don't believe that they serve any role in this. So, they're, in your view, they're irrelevant then. For this case, yes, Your Honor. And, and the reason why I say that, Justice Irvin, is when you look at the various phases in the relationship between the parties, and the court in the estate of Williams has set out, look at those phases. Here, the basis of the plaintiff's fraud complaints arise from the transfer and sale and leaseback of my client's property. That's a specific. Uh, activity in a specific uh, phase in the long-term relationship. So, so if you divide every governmental activity as you are proposing that we do, does, your, does acceptance of your argument mean that any contract that a local government chooses to enter into for the purpose of obtaining an asset for use in providing a governmental service therefore becomes proprietary? Uh, I would, Your Honor, in this uh, specific case. And if you're... you're well, I mean, but I'm, I'm trying to talk more generally about what would be the implication of, a ho of the holding that you're asking us to uh, make in this case. Are you saying, in effect, that any time that a municipality enters into a contract for the purpose of providing a governmental service, the process of entering into that contract and administering that contract therefore is a proprietary activity not subject to governmental immunity? It depends on what portion of that contract we're discussing, Your Honor. Normally or generally, when you enter into a contract, a, a municipality or a governmental agency will waive that immunity simply by entering into that a contract. That comes from right. Um and, and, and as I understand it, you still have a viable contract claim pending in the trial court. We do, Your Honor. With that, that claim, and actually I, I understand that the trial court discussed it, and I understand that the Court of Appeals has discussed it, but that has never been part of any motion before any court. That uh, breach of contract claim is still alive and will still continue. So, so even if we were to rule uh, against you in this case, you still have a right to proceed with your breach of contract claim in the trial court? That is correct. Okay. Uh, however, we believe that the remedy that's provided by that contract is insufficient to make my client whole. At the end of the day, that's why we are pursuing both the fraud claim as well as the breach of contract. Uh, and again, it's, it's dealing specifically with the transfer of that, that uh, uh, property. The town of Weddington decided to create their own uh, district, fire district, uh, in 2013. They entered into the interlocal agreement, which was an improperly styled agreement, and they entered into a fire suppression agreement. They waited almost a year to enter into that contract to transfer that property over to the town. And during that time, that's when the fraud was taking place. Everybody had an expectation going in to this transfer of the property. My clients had the expectation that they were going to have a 10-year fire service agreement. However, you will see from the pleadings where I have alleged numerous facts to demonstrate that while they were moving towards the transfer of the property, the mayor and the town engaged in fraud and I guess that's, I'm going to stop asking you questions a second and let you get on to your argument, but you've, you've got on the other one that I was going to ask you. Is it your contention that the, the availability or non-availability of a governmental immunity defense depends upon whether there is a valid claim of liability? And, and if I can ask you to, to repeat that. I'll give it a shot. Right. I mean, you've repeatedly argued that one of the reasons that you should not be uh, barred, your claim shouldn't be barred on the grounds of governmental immunity is because that you have successfully alleged various fraudulent activities. I had always understood immunity to be something that prohibited the claim regardless of whether it was valid or not. 
are you contending that it makes a difference for purposes of governmental immunity whether the claim that is being alleged is or is not valid? Um, I believe that to best answer that question, Your Honor, I think what the absolute immunity provision falls under the, the sovereign immunity claim. So when a, a state is being sued, uh, a state agency or a state uh, representative is being sued, here because it's a governmental uh, agency, a municipality or a city, uh, there is uh, exceptions to that governmental immunity as set out. And those exceptions uh, include the liability of the fraud. Well, it's, I mean, maybe I, maybe I misunderstand immunity law at a fairly basic level, but I had understood, in effect, that if a claim was barred by immunity, it was barred, and it didn't matter whether the claim was valid or not valid because the purpose of the immunity was to prevent the entity from having to even defend against it. Why does it make any difference whether you have alleged a valid claim of fraud or not uh, in terms of determining whether uh, governmental immunity applies because we have a governmental function as compared to whether governmental immunity doesn't apply because we're talking about a proprietary function? Well, and I, I think that's uh, what Your Honor, the last statement of Your Honor points that out. Here is the proprietary function. That's what we're alleging is that the town is engaged in a proprietary function. So govern, governmental immunity would not apply when the town is engaged in a proprietary activity. If the town is engaged in, in a situation that has nothing to do with a governmental function, then yes, the town does not have that governmental immunity available to it because it's not a governmental act. Here, the transfer of the property as set out by uh, the estate of Williams and the factors to be considered. Uh, this is, uh, transfer of property can be done both publicly and privately. Uh, it can be uh, um, between parties, third parties, between governmental agencies and, and not governmental agencies. This is not a situation where only the government holds that avenue uh, to enter into a contract for transfer of property. That's what we're specifically on. And, and the Court of Appeals acknowledged that, that we had alleged that the uh, uh, act uh, in front of it was a proprietary act and that the transfer of the property was the proprietary act. And that's what we're alleging. We're not actually alleging that fire service is not a, a governmental act. I think that's pretty standard that providing fire service, if you are a municipality and you have a municipal fire company, that is a governmental act. But you, you do seem to be arguing that a contract to obtain an asset that would be useful in providing fire suppression service is a proprietary activity. It might be different if it was absolutely necessary to obtain that asset, but if it was a discretionary determination as to whether to use that asset or some other asset, that, in your view, then would be a proprietary function. It's the way I'm understanding your that's, argument. That's is that wrong? Right. Okay. That's correct. Thank How you. do we reconcile your — I'm sorry, Justice Hudson. Go ahead. May I? Yeah, go ahead. All right, thank you. I'll make it quick. Uh, how do we reconcile your position with the Mike versus City of Gastonia case, if I'm pronouncing the, the Mike party correctly, that downtown revitalization case out of Gastonia in which we decided relatively recently that the proprietary aspect of the government's function coupled with the immunity aspect uh, makes it a case-by-case -case basis? It sounds like you would have us to have a broader approach to that and say that the immunity would not apply. Uh, how does your position reconcile with our holding in that case? Uh, Your Honor, th that case is, is different from the case at Bar. There is a statute there, the revitalization statute, that talks about revitalizing blighted neighborhoods. Uh, and that statute specifically references that as part of the governmental function. Here we're, we're missing that statute. We don't have the statute that says that the transfer of this property for a, uh, a fire service where you might need the property or it could be useful, that that is a governmental function. In the Mike case, you have that. The statute sets it out that this is a governmental function. In addition, that involved an injury to a third party who was not a part of that lease. Here we have an individual or the, the uh, fire department, which is a part of that contract for the transfer and for the lease back. And that's what the difference between Mike is in, in this case, Your Honor. Would we be doing something different in this case uh, at bar here? Or are you asking us to extend or otherwise uh, differentiate between this case and Mike? At the most, I would ask is this court differentiate the difference between this case and Mike. Uh, and, and the reason for it is this case 
again, this, there is a statutory scheme that was in place, the revitalization statutory scheme, that allowed for the court to make that determination that it was a uh, governmental function because the statute said it was. It was part of their governmental function to renew these bladed areas. Um, in this case, we're just dealing with the contract for transfer of property. Justice Hudson, thank you. Uh, yeah, um, um, I was just going to ask you about, don't we look at the entire overall purpose of the agreement that this would, that the purpose of the purchase was ultimately to provide fire protection services, wasn't it? Well, and uh, if the court looks to its decision in the estate of Williams, it says we shouldn't look just to the overall uh, outcome of it. We've got to look to the various phases along the way. And if we look to the Sandy Creek decision, the second Sandy Creek decision, you will see that in play. That case involved the construction of a sewer facility. At the end of the day, there was going to be a sewer facility built. However, along the way, there are contracts with con contractors and, and other things that the court says you've got to look at the various phases along the way, not just the overall goal that it's a, a, uh, a governmental function. Well, do we, I, I didn't see that we have that particular multiple phases here. You have a contract, couple of contracts, one of which is to provide fire protection services. And I heard you say that they might or might not use the property for fire protection services. Was there any indication in the record that they were going to use it for anything other than a firehouse? No, forgive me if I, I, I uh, led to that misunderstanding. No, that what I was trying to reference is that the firehouse was not necessary to provide that uh, fire service. They could have contracted with my folks uh, to operate out of that firehouse. They could have asked another fire company to operate under a different firehouse. What they did is they needed that fire or that uh, property in order to effectuate their intention to terminate the contracts fraudulently and transfer that property to a rival fire company. So do we look at the contracts and the overall agreement that they entered into here or what they might have done otherwise? I believe you just look to the contracts that are entered into here. You have the interlocal agreement, which was the overall right. agreement. You have the fire suppression agreement, which was the 10 years uh, uh, fire suppression, a renewal of five, how much you're going to get on your initial funding. Then you have this last piece of the puzzle, which is the transfer of this property. That we will renovate this property at a cost of 935000 and in the end, we obtain a valuable piece of property that is now, post-construction, worth $1.596 million. That's a that's a, a nice <clears throat> benefit for the town to have on its books. That's a, 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 a significant increase in value for its investment. If the town invests nine hundred thirty-five thousand dollars and gets a one point five six million dollar piece of property, that's a significant pecuniary gain. Unless uh, your honor has another question. Well, I'm I'm still a little unclear about the the basis of the distinction you you were trying to draw in response to Justice Morgan's question about the Mike case, because the broader principle that we stated there was that you sort of look at the overall purpose about whether um, the agreement is governmental, is designed to, to promote a governmental purpose. And there we thought there was, even though there's a statute that you pointed to. Um, how do you distinguish that kind of analysis from what we're supposed to do here? Well, simply say there is no statute in our case that points to that. And that's, uh, that's, that's the, the gravement of the complaint is there's, there is no statute uh, that's issued by the legislature that says contracting and contracting with the fire department to take its property, lease it back, is a governmental function. I'm, I'm unaware of any statute that says you, uh, municipality, purchase of a piece of property that is now a governmental function. And is, is it your argument that the statute needs to be down to that level of granularity before there is a governmental, a valid claim of governmental immunity? I don't think it has to get down to that level. Um, I, I think the level is there. The problem is there's a hole in the statute, and that's for the legislature to fill. Simply because there's a hole in the legislature, uh, legislative statutes that doesn't recognize a fire department, which has become what fire departments are now. They're called voluntary fire departments, but they're truly not really voluntary. These, these voluntary firemen go from department to department, make up their weeks, 
they work at this department here for two days, this department here for a day. These are, they have a, a somewhat of a, a volunteer base, and you'll find more of a volunteer in the rural communities, uh, but they have a volunteer base. I believe what the statutes need to do is recognize that this is not a municipal, so it's not run by the town of Weddington. The town of Weddington doesn't pay the firemen directly. This is a third-party vendor, if you look at it that way. It's a third-party vendor to provide the services that they're looking for. That's all they are. Did I answer your question? Mm -hmm. um, and, and as I'm quickly winding down on my clock, I'd like to uh, at least move over to uh, the defendant mayor uh, in the legislative immunity claim. Again, this is renewed de novo. Uh, this claim, the court uh, jumped to the fact that he might have said something before election and then the town council, without him, voted to terminate. Again, the complaint is replete with factual allegations to state the fraudulent actions by the mayor after he took office, between the time that he took office and the time of the transfer of the property. The mayor uh, instructed the town attorney to construct a, a decision tree that would lead to the termination of the fire department, but didn't publicize it to anybody, didn't publicize it to its other members of the council. The mayor instructed the town attorney to go investigate before the property is transferred. Here's where the intent is, and we specifically state it. Go and see what our defenses are for breaches of contract. What are our defenses for immunity? That's what the mayor and, and the, the council for the town was looking at. It's a clear intent the whole way that they did not intend to honor that agreement. This is, this is big government gone awry. We're going to get that piece of property, and we're going to do what we want with you and put a 60-plus year fire service company out of business, out of existence. And that's what they did. With regard to the mayor, he was acting in his individual capacity at all times, outside the scope of setting the agenda, putting something on the agenda. What he did in instructing the attorney to take these actions was outside the scope of his authority as a mayor, outside the statutory scope of his authority as the mayor. Be because he acted fraudulently? That's correct, Your Honor. So that, that's, the, that's the fact that takes it outside his uh, uh, area of protection? Well, he can... Uh, add things to the agenda, that's within his, his uh, uh, authority. That mayor's authorities are limited, as you know. So his authority is to run the meetings, put things on the agenda, those sorts of things. Not to direct counsel as to what to do and how to terminate this contract or to go investigate ways to terminate this contract. And that's what the mayor did. And we, we believe that, again, at this early stage, this case has been going on, was filed originally in 2015. We have had very limited discovery. We have been nothing but motion practice. We've been up to the Court of Appeals twice. Now before Your Honors on this matter. Your Honors, this is a, a case that is, is, if you look at all of the factors and all of the facts that are set out in the complaint, demonstrate a fraudulent act and intention and a plan to get that piece of property so they can terminate the agreements, have that site, which is central in the town, have that site, to give it to another fire company. And that's what they did. They worked in that avenue to deprive my clients of their property without just compensation and give it to another, uh, another rival fire company. Uh, unless there's some other questions, I'd like to reserve some of my time for the rebuttal, if I may. Thank you. Thank you, Council. We'll hear from the FLE. May it please the court. My name is Andy Santanello, the eye is silent, of the Mecklenburg County Bar and law firm of Pope Edward Sweeney and Santanello. I represent the town of Weddington. I intend to speak for approximately 15 minutes on behalf of the town, and then I will yield to my colleague, Mr. Bailey, who will speak on behalf of the mayor. The, I'm going to jump right in because I believe the crux of the dispute between Mr. Duggan and the plaintiff versus the town 
is how we view the underlying activity that is the subject of the fraud claims. There was in the, in the original complaint, in the amended complaint, a fraud in the inducement and a general fraud allegation against the town. Judge Keenard at the trial court level combined those two for purposes of analysis, and I think that's appropriate. Keep it simple as much as we can for this court. It is, as I understand the argument of Mr. Duggan expressed here and in his brief, it is the position of the volunteer, Providence Volunteer Fire Department that the underlying act here was the purchase of the land, that his clients were duped into giving up title to their long-held fire station to the town, and that the town did not need to purchase that property in order to provide fire protection to its citizens. The town's position to the contrary is that we look not only at just the single act of purchasing that property, but we look at the entire global agreement between the two parties here to see what it was, what was the purpose of the town. And I think the, the, the operative question is why did the town purchase that fire station? And I think the answer is clearly in the record that was before the trial court, the Court of Appeals, and this court. In his new brief to this court, Mr. Duggan attached the three written contracts that constitute the overall agreement between the parties here. In order of chronology, they are the fire suppression agreement. There is an interlocal agreement which, whether it's misnamed or not, involves the actual transfer of the property itself. And then there is the third, a lease-back agreement where the town agreed to lease the fire station back to Providence for its use for, I believe, a dollar a year, if I'm remembering correctly. The, those three contracts are bargained for exchanges. It is not a unilateral self-serving statement of the town. It is an agreement the parties reached at the time, back in 2013, as to why they were entering into this agreement. If we turn to the very first page of the fire suppression agreement, we will see very clearly set forth why the town entered into this agreement and why they purchased the property. One, the town wanted to provide fire protection service to its citizens. Two, it wanted the Providence Volunteer Fire Department to do so. Three, it re recognized that it wanted to secure the long-term stability of the Providence Volunteer Fire Department. Four, the station in question was in need of immediate repairs. Five, the Providence was going to have to undertake debt to make those repairs so they could be serviceable to provide that fire service. Six, the town was willing to undertake to help fund those repairs. And the parties agreed as part of their security for the town willing to do so that the fire department would sell the station to the town. If we flip a couple pages later into that fire suppression agreement to the penalty clauses of, the, of that contract, it states that there is a, a bargain for liquidated damages clause that if the town were to breach this contract, there is a $750,000 liquid damages provision that is specifically stated to compensate the town, I'm sorry, compensate the fire department for loss of its real property, i.e. the fire station. If we read all of And again, just to make sure that everybody's on the same page here, because I'm finding very few areas of agreement, there's no question but that the contract claim that the town asserted in its original pleading is still pending in the trial court and is still viable at this point. You're correct, Justice. So that they, regardless of what we do here, the fire department will have the right to seek to recover damages depending on how they're determined, whether liquidated or otherwise, under the contract. You are correct, Your Honor. Regardless of what happens here today, this case will go forward in the trial court. The plaintiff will have their opportunity to prove that the town was incorrect and properly breached the agreement. As the Court of Appeals pointed out, we are not dealing with the contract. We are dealing just with the tort claim. We're dealing with the tort claim. With the fraud tort claims. Yes, sir. Go ahead. No, please. So you've listed various reasons that are stated explicitly in the contract. What if those are a facade? Isn't that the essence of the tort complaint, that while there may have been these statements that were made in a contract, the true reason was very different than what was stated? Isn't that what's being claimed here? Yes, Your Honor. And I think the distinction is 
that we are talking about sovereign immunity for the fraud claims, that there, there may very well, if we assume for purposes of argument that the town did commit fraud, is that claim a, a claim that is subject to sovereign immunity? As I, you mean governmental? I'm sorry. Yes, yeah. go governmental immunity, because we are talking about a municipality. We is whether or not that claim is subject to the immunity. I have been trying to differentiate because I think the dispute between us is whether or not we're talking about a proprietary versus a governmental act. But assuming that fraud did occur here, I have cited in the brief the Herring versus Winston-Salem for Scythe County Board of Education Court of Appeals decision, which stands for the proposition that sovereign immunity or governmental immunity on a fraud claim is subject to that immunity. So we are, as Justice Servitor pointed out, the contract claim will still be there. This is whether or not they can pursue that fraud claim. And the governmental immunity is not only an immunity from judgment, it is immunity from suit. So I think that is the fine distinction that we're dealing with here. But aren't we having to also address the flip side of one of Justice Irvin's prior questions uh, to your colleague and his response, which had to do with is, is fraud, either in the inducement or fraud uh, surrounding uh, the contract itself, uh, is that always exempt from governmental immunity? That would be one argument. The other argument is no municipalities can fraudulently negotiate any kind of contract and they're always going to be immune. Is that your position? You, Your Honor, my position is separating the two. They always have the contract claim. That's not subject to the immunity. But they, a fraud claim is, will always be subject to immunity if it's a governmental act and the, the municipality has not waived its immunity. Yes, that's my position. So let's say that uh, uh, they were going to buy a fire truck, uh, but they knew that for whatever reasons uh, that they were uh, not going to pay what the price that they agreed upon. Uh, they, the city knew right from the start. But just because it's a fire truck, then they would not be liable. But if it's a copying machine and they fraudulently entered into a contract to buy a copying machine, then they could be liable. Is that is, uh, we look at a fire truck versus a copy machine? I, I think, Your Honor, is, 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 is showing a fine distinction here. A copier machine is much easier. I don't think there would be any logical argument that a copier machine might be a governmental act. It's a well, let's say that it's used exclusively for the fire department. It, it's possible, Your Honor. I, th I think if I may jump to your analogy of a fire truck, I, I do not disagree with my opposing counsel that this immunity question is a very highly fact-specific argument, that if we, if we have to look at the individual facts of each case, if we use your copier example, the, you know, if it's going to be a copier that's just used in general to copy water bills for the general public, I don't think that, that would poss could possibly be an immune act. If it's only going to be for the fire department, there may be an argument that that is part of the fire suppression. And I think in your analogy, there would always be a contract underlying those, those, those transactions. A copier is an expensive piece of equipment. A fire truck is an incredibly expensive piece of equipment. So I think there would always be that contract that could claim that could be breached in parallel. But what we're dealing with, I think, here with this court, as Your Honor points out, the fine distinction is where do we draw that line between a governmental act? What is the overall purpose here? And as Mr. Duggan has argued, the overall purpose is purely just to buy the, the land, and that's, that's proprietary, not governmental. I'm suggesting that we're looking at the, the total picture. If we look at all these facts, the best evidence being the language of those agreements, not just the fire suppression agreement, but the language written into the other two that directly refer back to the fire suppression agreement, stating that this whole purpose of this overall arrangement is to provide fire protection services for the people of Weddington. Well, help me understand the good public policy reason behind uh, uh, municipalities. You can commit fraud with impunity if it has to do with fire trucks or fire anything. But if it doesn't have to do, I mean, why should we? Why should there be this distinction? Why shouldn't the government always have uh, the responsibility of acting in 
good faith and fair dealing when it enters into a contract? Your Honor, the role of a government entity is always going to be subject to criticism, no matter what decision they make, whether it's a legislature, whether it's a city council. There will always be those that will, will claim that they were wronged by a decision, even if it's just one person. If we shadow or, or darken the, the, the possibility that every decision made by any legislative body is always going to be subject to potentially not only some type of, of claim but a fraud claim, I think that would chill the overall ability of government people willing to serve on, on government and the ability of legislative bodies such as town councils to make decisions freely as they see fit for the best interest of their citizens. Again, the plaintiff here in this particular case will not be without remedy if, you're, if this court upholds the decision of the Court of Appeals. They will have their opportunity, whether it's through a liquidated damages clause or, or through a, a full breach of contract claim, to recover for their damages. And they will, the, a jury of Union County will get a chance to pass on whether the, the town council of Weddington made appropriate decision or acted in bad faith in breaching this contract. So, so my question is about what facts we are to consider. We, we've established that this immunity question is a highly individualized, fact-specific question. And here the issue is whether this was a governmental or proprietary function. In making that determination, because this is on a motion to dismiss, aren't, aren't we supposed to look to the allegations, base that decision on the allegations as they are in the complaint? Yes, ma'am, but also since this was filed on a 12B1 and 12B2, some additional materials can come before, before the court, including the affidavits of the town administrator and the, the town finance officer, and I'll come to those here in a second. But if we, my position to the court is that there is sufficient information in this record to make a determination by primarily looking at, the, at those terms and clauses of those three agreements to, under, to determine what was the purpose of entering into this agreement. Why did the town seek to purchase the property? What was that part of it? Right, but to the extent there are allegations in the complaint about what the purpose was, and that in fact it was a fraudulent purpose, aren't we required to, to make this determination based on those facts? Yes, ma'am, I, I would agree, but again, going back to the purpose of the immunity defense in and of itself is an immunity from suit, not just from, from judgment, that is the role of first the trial court and then the appellate courts, if it reaches this stage, to review the, the allegations of the complaint, the evidence in the record, and determine whether or not the immunity applies, because if, if not, the town ultimately loses that immunity, then it's a meaningless benefit. Right, but that's, the, I understand that's, that's the function of immunity, but here, we're not, we're trying to decide as a, as a threshold question whether or not this was a governmental function or a proprietary function. Yes, ma'am. Forgive me if I'm not understanding your question. I guess my point is that I believe there is sufficient information in the record to make a determination and that it is appropriate for you all to make that determination. Well, let me, let me, let me ask you the same question I asked Mr. Duggan in a different context. Does the extent to which the town engaged in tortious conduct control whether we have a governmental or a proprietary function? In other words, is the validity of the claim that the, that the fire department seeks to bring against the town uh, relevant to the determination of whether we have a governmental or a proprietary function? My position, sir, is no. It doesn't matter the, the level of agreement, at least for the town's point of view. That may be a different argument. Right, comes and I will discuss that with Mr. Bailey when we get there. Yes, yes, sir, but as to the town's point of view, I believe the, the degree of alleged fraud is, is irrelevant. I think we're just looking at the nature of the tort. And so, and so really the decision, at least as I've always understood it, the extent to which uh, the fact that the town, if it is a fact, may have engaged in wrongful conduct really involves not a question of do we have governmental immunity or, or governmental or proprietary purposes, but rather whether we have governmental immunity at all. Yes, sir. And so if we're going to start uh, saying, in effect, that 
of alleged wrongful conduct, we don't like that, therefore we're going to allow the claim to proceed, that's really inconsistent with the entire concept of governmental immunity, isn't it? Yes, sir. I, as, as I think I was, and maybe not very articulately, um, trying to uh, represent to Justice Earls, I, I believe that the whole benefit of the immunity, if it, if it exists, the benefit is to, the, to prevent not only judgment but suit itself to provide that protection. I see I have dipped below the 15-minute mark in fairness, Mr. Bailey. Unless there's any additional questions from the court, I will yield to Mr. Bailey. Thank you, Counselor. Thank you. Mr. Chief Justice. Honorable Associate Justices, may it please the court. My name is Frederick Bailey of the Craven County Bar, and I am here on behalf of the former mayor, Mr. William Dieter. Plaintiff's allegations of fraud, as asserted against the former mayor, at their core are an attempt to hold an elected public official liable in his individual capacity for a failure to adhere to a campaign promise. I didn't hear the last part for a failure, failure to, to adhere to a campaign promise. I apologize, Your Honor. <clears throat> the chilling effect such precedent would have on our local governments would not only serve to stifle debate, but forestall state or federal leg bleh, municipal leg legislation. This would simply be unsustainable. In response, Mr. Dieter requests that this court consider the doctrine of legislative immunity. That doctrine, which was first addressed by the North Carolina Court of Appeals in 1996 in the case of Vereen v. Holden, has been consistently reaffirmed since then. Now, it, it, it's always important in these cases to keep our categories straight, I think. Uh, in, your, in your understanding, is legislative immunity synonymous with public official immunity, or are the two different? And if there's a difference, what is it? No, Your Honor, they are substantially different. Legislative immunity is... So, so, that, so that, public, that the rules governing public official immunity don't have any bearing on whether there's legislative immunity or not? No, Your Honor. Now, I would, it, I would note that there would be a situation with regards to the mayor if he was acting in an executive capacity as opposed to a legislative capacity then public official immunity would be appropriate. But when we're talking about legislative acts and performing uh, conduct within his legislative capacity, then the doctrine of legislative immunity. And at least as I understood the Court of Appeals decision, it was on the basis of legislative immunity only and didn't go to other forms of immunity that might be available to the mayor. That is correct, Your Honor. That's correct. And we believe that it is appropriate for this court to recognize the doctrine because not only is it consistent with our lower court's uh, common law, but it's also consistent with several general statutes that have been enacted since that specifically invoke the provisions of uh, legislative immunity. And it is also consistent with this court's holding in Steelman versus City of Newburn. It's a 1971 case. We further submit that this court should adopt the Fourth Circuit test as it was applied in the Vereen case, again, the original case in which it was adopted by the Fourth Circuit, or strike that, the North Carolina Court of Appeals, as it sufficiently states the doctrine's purpose and is a clearly workable standard. And if that standard and if that test is applied to this case, we respectfully, respectfully submit that the former mayor is entitled to a dismissal under the doctrine of legislative immunity. Would the legislative immunity apply, in your view, to comments that were made and positions that were taken by the mayor when he was a candidate for office? No, Your Honor. I do not believe that legislative immunity would extend to activities that occurred while he was a candidate as the, the actual statements themselves would be non-legislative in nature. So how would we differentiate between the two in light of uh, your colleague on the other side's position on this concerning uh, the mayor's culpability? 
That's an excellent question, Justice Morgan. Uh, first, I would note that the purpose of legislative immunity regarding culpability is to eliminate any inquiry into the individual officer's motive or intent to allow uh, legislative immunity to, to exist as a doctrine, but to be able to pierce that to, by making allegations with regards to the intent or the motive of the individual officer would essentially swallow the protections provided by immunity. <clears throat> While not specifically articulated in our uh, Constitution, there has been multiple uh, general statutes that have relied upon and acted and it otherwise heavily implied the existence of legislative immunity. The first, we would uh, respectfully direct this court's attention to 120-9, which was enacted in 1787, predates the federal constitution and specifically provides our state legislators with a testimonial privilege. <laughs> Importantly, when this statute is compared to Article 5, Section 5 of the Articles of Confederation, the language of the two, while not identical, they certainly rhyme. And the relevance here that we would respectfully submit is that Article 5, Section 5 uh, is the precursor to the current speech and debate clause of the federal constitution, which serves as the springboard for federal legislative immunity. We believe that there are certain parallels there that are worth taking note of. Additionally, as highlighted in our brief, some, North Carolina's, some of North Carolina's more recent legislative enactments expressly reference the doctrine. The three referenced in our new brief are 1-72.2, 120-32.1, uh, and 120-132. Each of these statutes presume and rely upon legislative immunity as an established legal doctrine that goes so far as to actually acknowledge and invoke the existence of the document of the doctrine let me ask you just a few basic questions yes, uh, one uh, if uh, the mayor had not been elected then he would not have been in a position to do any of the things that are alleged that he did correct correct and even after he was elected Whatever he did, he, he wasn't acting as an individual. He was acting as a mayor, whether he's trying to influence uh, the alleged fraudulent activity or whatever it may have been. Uh, as an individual, he had no authority to do anything, correct? That's correct, Your Honor. His actions as mayor would have either been executive or as the allegation, or with regards to the allegations in the amended complaint, all of those would be, would submit legislative in nature. And so his, his only authority as it impacted this particular contract or the alleged breach, the fraud that was alleged, all of it was in his capacity as an elected official to be able to influence whatever the town may have done with regard to the contract. That's correct, Your Honor. His actions um, with regards to the specific fraud, which this court articulated in Hamilton v. Hamilton, the fraud is not in the, the original statement made, but in the subsequent inconsistent position taken. And it's because that subsequent inconsistent position is where the injury occurs. And in making that hold, and I would respectfully submit that this court primarily focused on where the injury in the fraud originated from. And in this particular case, the, as the Court of Appeals pointed out, the injury was the termination of the fire suppression contract. And that occurred during a town meeting that was called by uh, Mayor Dieter and during a vote that uh, was called also by Mayor Dieter. But was approved of by the council members and we would respectfully respectfully submit that because of where the injury occurred and during the uh instance in which it, which it occurred that it was appropriately in a legislative act i know it would never occur in reality but if a politician were to make a promise and then once they got into office they didn't fulfill it uh, 
is that, in essence, what's being argued here, that somehow that there's some culpability based on that? Your Honor, I would not presume to um, make a statement on behalf of opposing counsel or state his position, but that is certainly the point of view of the mayor at this point in time. And the, the concern that we have is if, if we allow this particular type of claim to proceed, it would open the floodgates of litigation um, at all levels of the state. Let me, let me get a little bit into the details of when legislative immunity does and doesn't exist. I think I understand why, I mean, as I understand it, the two components of it are first, legislative activity. I think you've talked with the Chief Justice about that a little bit. And then the second is that there was no unlawful activity. If I understand your colleague's brief, he argues in effect, well, we have that because he committed fraud. Uh, what does uh, unlawful activity for purposes of legislative immunity mean as you understand it? I would respectfully submit that that would mean that that would be a criminal act as opposed to an act that would be that would expose an individual to civil liability. Well, wait a minute, though. Criminal act exposes you to criminal liability. I think you just said civil liability. I apologize, Your Honor. And so I'm, I'm trying to, again, this, the, the categorization is important here, and I'm trying to stay in the correct category. That's, that's correct, Your Honor, and I apologize for that. I would note that an illegal act for the purposes of the test would be a criminal act. Is there a case that says that that you can cite me? No, Your Honor. There is no... Uh, case that I can cite with, with regards to the specifics. Um, but there are certain cases that note that while acknowledging that there are no, there are certain limitations to legislative immunity, that, that those limitations that would give examples, and the primary one that I can think of is bribery off the top of my head. And that would certainly con constitute a criminal act. And in this particular situation, we would, we would submit that while the uh, General Assembly has provided um, multiple avenues in which an individual can be um, pursued for fraudulent claims under the, the, the criminal statutes, that none of those give rise to, or the, case, or the, the, the facts as a, a, the facts as a less than the amended complaint do not rise to that level or support any of those alleged um, or any of those basis in the criminal statutes. If it please the court, if you have any other questions, I'm happy to address them. Otherwise, I will uh, yield the remainder of my time. Well, if I could just follow up on what you just said. So, it, so is it your position that if in this case, and I know this is not the facts here, but if in this case the allegation was that the mayor had received kickbacks for in, in, um, terminating this contract, so he had gotten financial gain himself personally um, from his course of actions, are you saying that would be covered still by legislative immunity because there would be criminal sanctions, or are you saying it would not be covered by legislative immunity? Your Honor, I would respectfully submit that the, a private individual would not be able to file suit and seek redress against the mayor in his individual capacity for such an action, but it would still subject the mayor to uh, criminal exposure. Okay. Before you sit, though, uh, that raises an, an issue, uh, and that, for me at least, and that is that do you agree with the town, uh, uh, the town's representative here today, that the uh, mayor in acting in a capacity as mayor would be cloaked in governmental immunity regardless of any personal liability in a matter such as the one raised by Justice Earls. I apologize, Justice Morgan. Could you repeat that so that I can... I'll try. Thank you. Uh, your colleague at the table uh, uh, answered a previous question uh, that uh, a governmental act could be fraudulent in nature, but nonetheless governmental immunity would still apply to the town. Does the mayor embrace that same position? With regards to the town specifically or with regards with to regard to the mayor acting in a legislative immunity capacity, although it may be a wrongful act, if it's done as the mayor in that official capacity, then the mayor would be cloaked in legislative immunity. That's correct, Your Honor. That would be our position. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Council. Thank you. Um, rebuttal. Thank you. Uh, and I don't anticipate using all my time, so I encourage all the questions you may have. Um, 
Justice Hudson, if I may, uh, you had asked me about uh, the question of are we just looking at these individual components. Uh, and I would cite to the court uh, its prior decision in the estate of Williams, where they go through the factors to be considered. And this is what the court stated then. In the analysis of factors listed above, when considering whether the action of a county or municipality is governmental or proprietary in nature, is particularly important of two points we have previously emphasized. And this is where they cite the case of Sides versus Cabarrus Memorial Hospital. First, although an activity may be classified in general as a governmental function, liability in tort may exist as to certain of its phases, and conversely, although a classified in general as proprietary, certain phases may be considered governmental. Second, it does not follow that a particular activity will be denoted a governmental function even though previously, previous cases have held identical activity be, to be such a public necessity that expenditures of funds in connection with it is for a public purpose. And I think that clearly sets out what this court has, has adopted and set out as a standard going forward, that we do look to that individual uh, agreement. Uh, and, and just so that uh, we can all be on the same page, uh, Mayor Dieter was not in office when the first two agreements were executed. He was not elected to the office. So those agreements were already executed before he even came into office. His fraudulent activity was to undermine those agreements. Well, to, to follow up on a question that the Chief Justice asked your colleague, yes. uh, would there be any liability, in your view, on the part of the mayor if the uh, town council had not voted as it voted when it uh, terminated the agreement? I think there still would be. So, so uh, how, would your, how would your client have been harmed if, for example, the mayor had, as a private citizen, gone out without telling anybody, tried to uh, undermine the support for the contract, while perhaps publicly maintaining to the contrary? How, would he, how could he be liable until the uh, effort succeeded? Well, and, and I, I can appreciate that argument. In every case, you have to have liability and you have to have damages, right? So in this case, the, the damages component, even if the town did not uh, do it, the mayor still acted in a fraudulent act. Uh, and as Justice Earls was uh, speaking about in taking kickbacks, for instance. Of course, you haven't alleged taking kickbacks. You've just simply alleged for some reason that apparently consists of, oh, I want to get my hands on the property, at least the way I understand your complaint. He began prior to... Uh, being elected and then after he was elected attempted to achieve the result that you to which you object and that that appears to be what the basis for his liability is my problem I'm, I'm having some trouble understanding how he can be liable in the absence of uh, action by the town council well it is a an interesting uh, question to pose uh, but in this case, we have the action of the town council. So in a case-by-case -case analysis, and that's what we've got to do. We've got to look at the but facts that, of the But that, that's clearly a legislative activity, isn't it? Pardon me? The, this, the town council's vote is clearly a legislative activity, isn't it? Yes, but he did not vote. He was there and presided, but he didn't vote because he didn't, didn't have to. There wasn't a tie. And I'd, I'd offer to the court he was not in a legislative capacity so, sitting so as So he mayor. can be held liable for a result in which he didn't even participate uh, in voting on. Your Honor, uh, the activities that he engaged in in order to uh, uh, reduce the amount of the contract price, uh, my clients were to receive up to a million dollars for the renovation. He reduced that to 935. My clients were supposed to uh, uh, have a memorandum of lease that was supposed to be filed. That would have provided some additional protection. That wasn't filed. Why it wasn't filed, I, I can make some uh, guesses there. But uh, the activity. The bottom, bottom line is we don't know for purposes of this record. We don't know. And that's the thing, Your Honor. We're at a 12B6 stage or a 12B2, 12B1 stage. We're, we're not fully into this thing where we've developed the case through, through uh, depositions, through uh, further discovery. This is still early on. I know it's in 2015, but oh my goodness, it's still early on in the litigation. Um, I, I would like to uh, address 
Justice uh, Earl's question about kickbacks. Uh, and, and I know that's not the facts of the case. Uh, but in the case that you have discussed, if the mayor was taking, say, donations for his political campaign uh, in order to try to get rid of this um, firehouse, I, I don't think that's, that's uh, a fraudulent act in and of itself. The fraudulent act is the mayor actively going out and working to undermine the existing contract with my clients had uh, hope and reliance upon. Um, Real quickly, why do you need the fraud claim if you've got the contract claim? They have no home. They're out of existence. They had to sell all of their fire trucks. They are a board. When my client's contract was eliminated, they, they had to, to move out of the firehouse, had to sell off their equipment. Well, if they, that, that was done wrongfully, uh, why can't you get recovery with your contract claim? Because the contract only provides for the liquidated damages of 750. Now we can move to try to eviscerate the entire contract or rescission of the entire contract, uh, but that's going to go down a, a long road that under certain, certainly under further motion practice. But there, you can't buy fire trucks, as it's been discussed here today. Fire trucks are very expensive. You can't buy fire trucks with $750,000. Not the amount of trucks that they had, the hoses, the equipment. All of these things had to be get rid of because, uh, and I see I'm out of time. Thank you, Your Honors. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Clark.